the tongue. Uh, individual licenses doesn't roll off the, the tongue like premium membership, but it's um, going to be very useful for us. As part of our, our launch, we just rolled out the interview creation tool, and those of you who have listened for a few years know that we talked about that a long time ago, and we're really, really excited to have rolled that out. Um, so far, just in the last few days, over 467 folks have completed interviews, and we've gotten great feedback. So if you haven't checked it out, please do, do so. It doesn't cost you a dime more, and you know, you'll spend 15, 15 minutes ask, answering 64 questions and get the best interview you've ever seen in your life. It's, it's pretty cool stuff. Um, also, we're, we're, we, are, we are spending some time, I'm traveling less these days, um, focusing on the operations of the company and kind of the technical infrastructure and development of tools. And we really intend over the next six months to a year to really accelerate the amount of tools and, and benefits we bring to the folks on this call. Um, again, as you know, no additional charge. We just really want to make, we just want to just deliver tons and tons of value to you all. So we're working really hard at it. Um, Mark's traveling, traveling a lot to make that happen, um, but we think uh, we're going to be able to deliver a whole lot of value. Um, we also rolled out uh, a new iPhone app with um, with a number of enhancements. One of the the largest being that now that you can listen to the latest Manager Tools podcast without actually having to go to iTunes, download them, and sync them up to your iPhone. So if you're at work and you want to listen to us on the way home, you can do so. You don't even have to go to iTunes. You can just stream it right to your to the iPhone app. And we are we haven't forgotten about you Android users. Uh, we're currently in the process of of developing an Android version of that as well. So that should be in the not too near distant future. The last thing I wanted to, to share with you is we just launched last week a new strategic partnership with Hewitt Packard with HP, and they are now featuring manager tools in one of their latest initiatives on uh, printer print apps. And print apps are essentially, if you, can think, if you think of iTunes and subscribing to or purchasing applications that download and run on your iPhone, we're talking about apps that you go to an app store, much like iTunes, and download and they run on your printer. And the Manager Tools app is one of the first ones and highlighted in the business section. And by subscribing there, you can essentially get a, a, a very five days a week, a special newsletter with management how-to in the standard Manager Tools tradition showing up on your printer every single morning when you come into work. So it's pretty pretty cool stuff. Uh, you'll hear more about that in the future. So that's a quick rundown of some of the things we've been doing. Um, so let's get to let's get to your questions because that's all what you didn't all call in to hear from me. Um, Mark? I'm here. Hi, everybody. Uh, Maggie or Mike and Wendy, can you hear me okay? I can, yep. Okay, good. All right, so guys, I'm going to run right through the questions as best I can. Uh, the first question is from Bruce. Um, what is the best way to incorporate questions that are candidate-specific during the interview process? Um, and, and, and I'm not going to read the details of the question, folks. We can save some time. The, the slide is up on the WebEx interface. Um, uh, the answer is, first of all, of course you can ask questions that are specific to a particular candidate. Uh, now, I'm biased. I, I think every every one of our interview creation tools questions is by definition specific to the candidate in that 
it's the candidate's answer, which will be specific, that matters. Uh, but, but separate from that, that nomenclature issue, you, of course you can ask candidate background-specific questions. Uh, the, 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 the questioner asked about employment gaps. You can technically ask that at almost any point in an interview. Okay. Now, look, it, it may simply come up. Uh, I'm going to make a recommendation here that you do it at the end in a minute. But, but if it comes up in the middle of the conversation that, that the candidate mentions it, if they mention it, if they do, there's no sense waiting. If a candidate brings up something that's particular to them, there's no sense waiting for the right time to ask that question. You can go ahead and ask away. That's how conversations are. You could even interrupt and say, wait, before you go on, tell me more about that. I'd like to know more. Let's go back. That's how conversations are. Okay? That said, all things being equal, I would recommend you ask questions that are specific to a particular candidate's background towards the end of the interview. Um, frankly, because any question that's specific to a candidate that gets asked early uh, and that in any way affects you and your interest um, or uh, uh, simply the candidate realizes you've asked it, obviously, um, if they don't do well during the interview, they're going to believe that you put more weight on that than on the rest of the interview. And, and, and it's important to note, it's not just why you say no to somebody. You don't necessarily have to give a reason, but it, how they perceive that no makes a difference. Um, there's no sense in giving a candidate a belief that it was, say, a gap in employment that got them eliminated when HR probably doesn't want you eliminating for that reason, even though, frankly, that's a completely fine reason. If somebody has a two-year employment gap, um, you could absolutely choose to eliminate somebody for that, as opposed to somebody who didn't have an employment gap, either because that indicates to you they're more, they're more employable for whatever reason, you haven't figured it out yet, or because they did a better job of career search, or because they have a better network. All three things are indicators of one's professionalism and ability to perform for you. It may not be the most important reasons, but they're valid. Um, and we look for any valid reason to say no to anybody. That's the whole point of interviewing. The purpose of interviewing is to say no. So I would ask it at the end, and you may not need to ask it. If somebody has a two-year gap in employment, and they will be really with you, and it's a terrible interview, why bother asking about the gap? You don't need to ask any specific questions about them. Um, if, if, in fact, somebody does poorly in an interview. Um, so, uh, and, and to be more broad about this, for those of you, as Mike alluded to, the interview creation tool, the interview creation tool questions needn't be exclusive. There, there are standard questions, which go to everybody who does the job, and then there are custom questions that, again, get asked of everybody, but they're related specifically to the job, or, or questions that you like to ask from everybody, there might be three or four more questions that you ask that are related to a particular uh, um, candidate, and that's completely fine. Again, though, I would ask them at the end. All right, second question, I think from the same guy. Um, in the announcement casting interview tool, I believe I understood Mark has suggested all interviewers ask the same questions as the candidate. Yeah, I did. Sorry, it doesn't make sense to you. Um, I, last time we were on this call, we made up names for people so we so people could be anonymous. I don't know if we've done that now, but I'm going to call you Bruce. Whoever asked this question, 
you know who you are. Sorry it doesn't make sense to you. It's the right way to interview people. Um, HR should not be asking different questions of the candidate. Um, uh, a good, solid interview that's about the candidate's skills relative to the job um, is really all you need. I don't know why HR needs to ask different questions. I can't imagine that I would let HR, well, no, let is probably too strong a word. I can't imagine that I have any interest in HR asking a bunch of different questions. Now, HR will probably act as if they get to, um, but I'd want to see them. Um, and I'd have a friend in HR show me what they are. And then I'd tell them why I didn't think I wanted them to do that. Um, HR, I'm guessing here, would ask uh, people questions. Why wouldn't I be asking people questions? In fact, a great many of the interview creation tool questions are people-related. Um, uh, I, I don't care for HR giving me an opinion regarding somebody's fit into our culture, if in fact HR would do that, because I'm fairly good at that anyway, and I can ask questions. I can infer a sense of culture without asking the direct question. People behave differently when they interview with HR. They soften their points of view um, because they're not as focused on impressing the, the hiring manager, if you're the hiring manager. Uh, they tend to recognize that they can soft pedal some things. And more importantly, having different people ask different questions is the same thing as three blind men touching an elephant in three different places and one saying it's a tree, another saying it's a wall, another saying it's a snake. Um, if, if you interview a candidate and, and you do one part of the interview and it's flawless, but one of your directs or even HR asks different questions than you and you don't know what they are, um, and doesn't really like the candidate, and, and then has vague reasons for declining them because they don't know how to interview well, um, wh what would you do? Um, would you say, well, okay, my direct or HR didn't like them, but really doesn't know why, just didn't like them. You know, I would immediately say, well, okay, I want to interview them, and I want to know what questions you asked them, and then I'll decide whether or not those questions are important. Um, HR is not going to have to live with the person, even though they say they're protecting the culture. The culture of the company ends up being the manager that that person works for. And so uh, we don't recommend everybody taking a different slice of the person. And if you listen to our uh, interview results capture meeting podcast, uh, it gives you very specific reasons why having the same people ask the same questions is a better way of doing it. Uh, that said, the interview results capture meeting will ferret out those people who have interviewed somebody and done a poor job of interviewing them, uh, even if they know it in advance. Um, I've talked to too many HR people who give terrible interviews. They think they're good at interviewing when, in fact, they're not interviewing for the job. Uh, don't bring anybody in. I, I, I can't imagine a manager, a hiring manager, knowing they're going to have to hire somebody and live with somebody for years, not getting a sense of whether or not the person would be a good fit culturally for the company. And if you thought they weren't, why would you bring them in? And if, in fact, they, they were a good fit, I don't think we need HR to validate that. Or if HR wants to interview them, let HR interview them, do whatever the heck they want, and then hire them. Um, and for those of you who don't have the ability to hire somebody unless HR says okay, that's a whole different question that I don't have two hours for. Okay? And, and Bruce, or whomever you are, if you need further clarification of that, send me an email. Happy to, happy to discuss it further. And it may just be that it doesn't make sense to you and you don't like our approach, and that's okay. Um, we respect that. Ours works. We've done it tens of thousands of times. Okay. Next question um, from Tom. When is it time to ask for additional staffing resources? <laughs> uh, 
What are the appropriate metrics to determine enough is enough? Uh, Tom, this is, this is really an impossible question for me to answer. But based on your scenario that you put up, access point increase and so on, it sounds sufficient to me, but I don't know your boss. I don't know your history with your boss. I don't know your history with requesting assets. No offense, but you may be the boy who cried wolf, and you're not going to get assets anyway. Um, I don't know if you have four directs or 50. Um, I don't know if they're slackers or if they're superstars. Um, the point of the massive workload increase cast is that the vast majority of folks first response is mistakenly to believe that busy directs plus new work, I'll say that again, busy directs plus new work always means requesting more resources. And that's false. That's fundamentally false. Busy directs are good, and, and, but there's a qualitative piece, which is busy directs working on the right thing. New work may, in fact, drive out old work which directs won't naturally do, as most of you who have heard us talk about the juggling con, which Mike has a great story about, about his time at, uh, I want to say it was at Verizon. Um, you know, it, it, it's a different situation. It, you know, that said, if you've pre-wired your boss, the things I'm reading here suggest to me that you may, in fact, be a candidate. Um, there are things I don't know. If you want to send me a longer email, I'll be happy to answer it. Um, but a suggestion for you, if you've pre-wired your boss and your boss is open to it and you think you can make your case, go ahead and make your case and then have him make the case because if you make the case and he's not there, there may be people getting the impression that you're making the case but you don't have his blessing. If, in fact, you have his blessing, he probably knows more people, he's probably better at it than you, no offense to you, um, and have him make the case for more hours. That's a way to increase the chances that you'll actually get the hires that you need, okay? Hope that helps. Again, I've said it a couple times already, but, it, but if, folks, if you need more than what I've given you in these, this, this forum, I am happy to spend more time with a longer email as long as so many of you have done so well. Ask your question up front. Don't tell me a story first. Okay. This is from Tom's Direct. I don't know if that means somebody who works for Tom or not, but how do you deal with coworkers that hold the opinion that individuals with neat and orderly desks and offices really do, uh, don't really do any work? Uh, I don't know. How do you deal with the, with the people who expect us to give away all of our stuff for free? Um, try, I would say try not to worry too much about judgmental associates. Uh, I think those people are idiots. They don't know what they're talking about. I probably wouldn't tell them that to their face, but they're idiots. Um, uh, they probably also have opinions about the earth being flat and about aliens and about fear as an effective management tool. Um, look, all the data are in and have been in for years. Your office appearance absolutely reflects your methods. Methods matter. Um, yeah, there are people who are anal about their office in a way that's uncomfortable for other people. Like as soon as somebody gets up out of their extra chair in their office or their cube, they dust it. Or when somebody touches something on their desk, they rearrange things on their desk to get things aligned. Um, uh, you know, it's uh, a little bit like the lady in Harry Potter who obsessively rearranges the pencils on her desk. Um, uh, Dolores Umbridge is her name. Um, people who take umbrage with other people being in their office don't get that it's all about people. 
Um, I don't know. Uh, and other people's excuses, let them be their excuses. I mean, you know, everybody has excuses for all kinds of things. Um, so I, I wouldn't worry about it. If you're going to try to make everybody happy, you're going to be unhappy. Remember the, the fable of the man, the boy, and the donkey? Um, you can't please everybody. Stop trying. Let them have their opinion. They probably, you don't like their opinion. That's fine. They don't like your opinion of their desk and the fact that it's messy. Don't be judgmental about them either. Let's just let's leave it to, hey, this is one of the things that I'm better at than them. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to simply use it as a competitive advantage. Okay. Sorry, I can't be more help on that one, but I'm not a big fan of trying to justify what I believe is an effective behavior to somebody who would disagree with me. Okay, next from Roger. Is it really possible to hold supervisors accountable? Huh. <laughs> no. Um, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, the, the question goes on to say, well, you know, my, my boss says, uh, he, my boss says I should hold him and my peers accountable. Um, how do you hold your boss accountable? If I use the feedback model, I'm giving my boss feedback. Okay. You can't hold your boss accountable, folks. The very definition of accountability is, is not inherently it doesn't work. Holding somebody accountable is a funny thing. Being accountable, think about it, is really about an external force holding someone to account. When you have no role power, I mean, I suppose you could take out a web page and say my boss sucks, um, but that won't get you anywhere. Um, being held to account, quote unquote, is really where it comes from. There will be an accounting for your actions. I can't imagine anyone saying that to their boss. You don't have any power that you can apply towards your boss, other than the withholding of your work product, which isn't a form of power. It's a form of it's the opposite of coercion. Uh, it's it's hostage taking, and won't last for very long. So now, on the other hand, what can you do to increase the chances that your boss does what he or she says they'll do? Yeah, there's some things you can do there. You can provide reminders to him about things he's committed to in advance. You don't drop dimes on him in meetings. Um, you ask for stuff he's promised you um, when he doesn't deliver it. Let, remind him about it in advance and then let him know he missed the deadline politely. Um, you can certainly mention his deliverables that he owes to a project or to you when you're mentioning everyone else's, say, in a project meeting. Um, uh, you could do it at the end of a meeting. You could simply ask. You don't have to tell them, hey, you missed a deadline. You can say, hey, I'd really appreciate it if you get, uh, I'm sorry, you can say, I'd really appreciate it if you get X to me, or, hey, when will you be able to get X to me? And when he says, when was the deadline, you can say, with a wry grin, yesterday. Uh, and be prepared to answer, what's the impact of my lateness? And be prepared to say, if you get it to me tomorrow, I'm okay. I'll do the extra work I need to do to catch up. If I don't get up by Friday, we're going to slip deadlines. Um, and your boss is going to miss some deadlines. Wendy can tell you that about me. I can tell you all my bosses have always missed deadlines. It's one of the one of the benefits and one of the curses of, of role power. But no, you can't hold your boss accountable. I would engage in the behaviors I've suggested um, and, and and keep your fingers crossed, even though, yes, hope is not a method. Yeah, and Mark, I just add in there, when, when, when you're asking those your boss those questions that Mark just suggested. You can't put a tone in your voice that suggests annoyance or <laughs> some kind of reproachment, right? <laughs> You're not that good. It doesn't work, right? Yeah, it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, and, and frankly, I get emails from people all the time that 
correct something I've done and they don't realize the tone of their voice is, I'm correcting you. Right. So be cautious. If you're a high C, if you're a technical person and you're a high C, it creeps into your voice far more often than you realize. You come really? across judgmental. Oh, no. Oh, no. Not you, Mike. No, Mike, not you. No, okay. never. Okay. Okay. This question from Jason, the next slide. How can I best measure my own performance as a manager? Okay. Jason, it's not hard. Results and retention. Okay. That's where you start. Um, if every manager, well, let me, let me put it this way. The percentage of managers who measure themselves on results and retention fully on all of their results and all of their retention criteria, the percentage of managers in the world who do that is 2%. So, you know, you're in the top 2% if you just do results and retention. And, and, and being a manager is responsible for the output of other people to achieve results in the company. Too many companies measure output as opposed to results. Now, now, look, I'm not saying output can't be a great proxy for results, but don't kid yourself. If your people process 5,000 documents, when in fact your result is supposed to be a given customer outcome with a quality standard of this, you may, be feel, you may feel that 5,000 documents is a good proxy, but proxies aren't always pure measurements. And it'd be far better to measure the actual results you're going to be held accountable for. Generally speaking, the place to find out what your results are, are going to be or what they're supposed to be would be in your performance, uh, in your job description, your performance review. But not always. Um, here's the key. Figure out what you and your team are responsible for in terms of delivery. Measure that output. Measure that work, that outcome, and then work to achieve it. And look, the retention part is there. We, by the way, we start all of our conferences. For those of you who haven't been to a conference, we start all of them with the same, the same basic um, uh, review of the Trinity. And even before we do that, I always say managers are responsible for two things: results and retention. The retention part is there because people are your largest, largest expense in achieving results. So we always pay attention to, to our biggest expense. Um, because that's our biggest drain on, on profitability. And uh, people are expensive to replace, which is often caused by the gross misuse of your role power in the form of fear-based motivation, right? If we only told managers they were responsible for results, most managers would end up in fear-based motivation, you know, kicking the ass uh, motivation, what used to be called KITA or KITA, K-I-T-A. Um, and you can get results like that for a while, but at some point you'll have retention problems and then uh, the company will burn out. Um, and, and, um, and so you've got to measure both. Retention is not hard to measure. If you don't know how to measure it, uh, I would encourage you to ask HR. And if your HR group doesn't know how to measure retention, you have a bigger problem than the notes to me. Okay? Um, frankly, too many companies and too many managers forget these two things and measure all kinds of other things. And if you have 12 measures, they're all proxies. And, and, and frankly, if you brainstorm with your people, you'll suggest two, and they'll suggest eight more. Some of them will suggest eight more because, well, that's important. And yes, they, some things are important, but that doesn't mean they're most important or most valuable. Um, you'll end up with all kinds of things you shouldn't be measuring. So you don't need to brainstorm with people. And and. If you measure too much and you achieve all your measures, but then you don't achieve results, 
people are going to be pissed at you that you have them working for a thing. And prom I promise you, if you measure it, people will start gaming the system to get you what you want. So be careful. Make sure your proxies are good or measure the results you're actually responsible for. All right. Um, how do I best help my team rebound from a major morale buster? I actually changed my answer on this late this afternoon, I'm gonna, uh, in part because of another question. I'm going to give you two answers. I'm going to give you the first answer I wrote, and then I'll tell you a different answer, which you probably can't implement, but I want you to keep it in mind for the next time this happens. Okay. Um, you know, this is a hard situation. Your team has worked really hard, but it is a good lesson for them about what drives the business. Technical people, uh, I know they do get excited about technical features and benefits and so on, but your company does not produce technical features and benefits. It produces value for a customer that in turn turns into profit for the organization. Um, other parts of the organization go through this all the time. The single biggest organization in all companies that complain about their team working hard and their work not being included is IT. It's frustrating. And salespeople go through the sales process all the time and get told no and waste hundreds of hours. And they don't go around bitching and complaining about it. IT does. Okay? So I would encourage you, keep this quiet. Okay? And if your people are complaining to other people besides you, you need to change that. Okay? The key to this, my, my specific recommendation, is to communicate with them and get them working again. It's okay to let them complain to you privately, but it's not professional for them to go pissing and moaning to other people on the team. If another person is sitting at their computer doing email or actually doing real work, and sometimes email is real work, um, and somebody comes over and says, can you believe this thing? You, not, you went from one person not being effective to two people not being effective, and the ability of most human beings to, to deny a coworker, a peer coworker, the chance to vent is very low. But venting is part of the the collab, the the, uh, the bonding that people do. Unfortunately, we don't want bonding to be place of effectiveness. Right. So let them complain to you. It's okay for you to listen. It's okay to say, yeah, I totally understand how you feel. And I felt that way, too. And by the way, I found that the best way to get around this is to work towards something else. Listen to them. Support their, their feelings, right? It's okay for them to feel that way. You've got to correct any vague and wild assertions about the business side of things. People do that all the time. Um, tell them not to whine to each other. And look, if, 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 he, if, if, if Joe, who works for you, complains to Bob, who works for you, Talk to Joe in, the one, in your one-on-one -on -one and say, hey, I'm going to give some feedback. When you complain to Bob, it takes Bob away from work. Okay? Don't do that. Okay? And then lastly, give them work to do. And we're gonna, you're going to hear a theme of this. I'll be more specific in a couple other questions. Um, everybody seems to forget about this. Everybody thinks management, a lot of people think management is about keeping people happy. It's not. One of the best ways to keep good people happy is to give them a lot of work to do. Give them work to do and hold them accountable for work. Get their mind off of this failure loss of opportunity to see you work in, 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 uh, in action and, and work, get them working on our things and hold them accountable. That's what professionals do. When they fail at something, they get to work on something else. My bigger suggestion, my larger suggestion for some time in the future, hire people who don't complain. Um, uh, I've seen this happen over and over and over again. You get two bad apples and then make four other people uncomfortable. Uh, and I've been called in, Mike, you remember a situation a few years ago where we had to decide, this guy is your problem. And he was the most gifted technical person on the team, 
and we said get rid of him or spank him because he's the problem. He went around thinking he was emotionally mature, went around thinking that part of his value was telling everybody else how bad things were. Not good. Okay. Next question from Mia. What do you think about rewards and recognition? <laughs> oh, those kind of questions. Um, look, uh, Mia says they've started an initiative to change the culture and uh, focused on recognizing good work, praise for its progress. And it's been a struggle to get peer managers on board. No kidding. I would not spend a lot of time on a culture change where managers change their behavior by recognizing good work. Uh, rewards and recognition programs are usually built on absence of rewards and recognition, which is not the issue. And then they the, the program develops rewards and recognition in the absence of what really can drive things, which is professional managerial behavior. And, and if you don't have professional managerial behavior, and on top of that, uh, which, and I'll define that in just a minute. If on top of that, you, if you don't have professional managerial behavior, and then you put rewards and recognition systems on top, people will immediately attend. If they're not working for the things you want to work toward them now, more praise is only going to get them to gain the system to get more praise. Okay? Um, and they will figure out a way to gain the system. Um, everything about human behavior in, in organizations large and small shows that. So the answer is, Start giving lots of feedback. And, and, and look, you're not going to get your peer managers on board because you're going to be asking a fundamental change. It can only come from your boss. And if your boss is not willing to ask for it and your boss thinks, well, I'll just put a rewards and recognition program out, then okay. Um, they're not going to get a whole lot of work, or a whole lot of change in behavior. And six months later, people have said, yeah, they didn't really mean it. That's a big problem with rewards and recognition. You get an initial improvement. The rewards and recognition are based on proxies. Uh, there are rewards and recognition pulled out, but there's no output change. There's no results change. And so the company says, why are we spending for rewards and recognition that aren't going to give us what we want? Let's stop it. And then the, and the employees say, oh, yeah, great. Yeah. yeah, clearly they didn't mean it or they ran out of budget, so they really don't care about us after all. The moment people start thinking you care about them based on how much money you pay them, you're screwed. Okay? Now, look, look the answer is professional managerial behavior, feedback, lots of it, positive and negative about specific behaviors. And look, praise is great. No problem with praise. We have a podcast called Yes, Please Praise. Okay? Uh, but it can't be substituted for more specific, smaller, more frequent, narrower, manager to subordinate specific, not in, a, not in an event, not in a form of a piece of paper or an amount of money or anything else, behavior-based acknowledgement of work that was good or behavior-based acknowledgement of work that has taken one off track. Um, and by the way, there's a lot of stuff out there about the negatives associated with, if you do this, I'll give you that kind of thinking. If you want to read a book that has 50 or so pages on the latest in behavioral modification uh, thinking, a great book by Dan Pink called Drive, an easy reading. Right? Right, let's see, it's 7.33. Mike took about five minutes. I think we've got, what, 21 slides, and we're on slide 10, so I think Wendy's not mad at me. That's good. Um, the next question is from Michael. What are your thoughts on twice-annual management resource reviews? Look, almost anything, guys, that's in the book Execution by Bossidy and Turan is good. I really like management resource reviews. Basically, all they are is, is a review of how the manager's doing. And, it, and, and if your company has some form of mid-year and annual review, 
you're doing it, or at least that's what your company suggests it is. Now, the thing about Bossy and Duran's book is that you get the sense that they are talking specifically about have you achieved your goals or haven't you, and are you on track, and whether you will or not. And, and co- managers and companies that are run by highly effective executives, um, like Bossy, like some folks at GE and so on, um, they don't get told at the end of six months, I know, I want you to work harder. They get told, if you don't do this, you're not getting your bonus. And you agree to this, and you haven't done it, and I love you. What do I need to do to help you? But don't ask for more resources. You should ask for those months ago when we were negotiating what your goal is going to be. So I love the idea. I've used it. It works beautifully. Um, would I consider something as similar as for an upcoming podcast? Sure, it's on our list already. This is just part of managing managers. This is just giving a mid-level, end-of-year, a mid-year and end-of-year review to a manager. Good reviews are specific and detailed. Uh, and talk about behaviors that need to change as well as behaviors that need to be continued. Great book, top five all time. And speaking of books, as an aside, uh, I mentioned recently I'm reading a series of books by Travis, by John McDonald about Travis McGee. I also uh, just bought and got another paper copy, probably my 30th or 40th bought of uh, Effective Executive, and I'm going to read it again in the next month as I'm traveling around. Okay, next question, number 11 from John. Am I setting a reasonable standard in trying to develop a culture of curiosity? Can you still be curious in the age of specialization? Ah, look, it, it's impossible to incentivize curiosity. And what I mean, look, folks, I generally see these kinds of intangibles as being the wrong place to focus. So I'm not going to sit here and say never do it. Here's a thought experiment for you. What would you do if the curious guy on your team didn't get his job done well, but a non-curious guy did? Until you get people's job deliverables nailed and their performance totally nailed, worrying about curiosity, in my opinion, is a waste of managerial bandwidth. Look, can you encourage it? Sure. You could, you could make some feedback choices about what, what you give somebody feedback for. Hey, when you reach out, and then when you don't understand something, you ask more questions, I really appreciate it. It tells me you're curious. That's good. Um, I think it, I, when I read an executive saying the thing I look for is somebody who's curious, I think that person is, is, was either misquoted or said before that, what I look for is somebody who achieves results and takes care of people as well. And then because that was boring, the, 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 the reporter took that out and said, one of the things I look for is curiosity. Very few highly effective executives are managing to hang their hat on curiosity. Do I think curiosity is good? Yeah. Do I like friends who are curious? Sure. Do I care how curious you are if you hit the numbers every single month? Not really. Um, is it something nice to have? Yeah. Um, you better have all your must-haves done first before you start worrying about people's curiosity. And I wouldn't hire for it because I know people who aren't terribly curious. In fact, there are a lot of people who say to me, you only have one thing in your professional life, and it's management. I said, yeah. Why would I be curious about anything else? I don't know everything I need to know yet. I don't, I don't have time to be curious about other stuff. All right, next question from Trey. How should we organize project reporting during our management meeting? For some, for some of you, this will be a hard answer because we're talking about a physician. Um, and, and the answer here, Terry, is it depends on the willingness and ability to, of your physicians and your team on your, in your, in your uh, practice to adapt to it and, and the culture in the office. I've worked with 50 to 100 physicians' offices. 
physicians and pilots and lawyers are some of the hardest people to teach management skills to. I don't know how how much of an effective mindset you have, although you do mention you're using an effective immune protocol. I find it's far better to have documentation, which something like Basecamp would provide you, uh, and the ability to update status as you get things done when you're managing projects, whether you're managing the doctors or lawyers or regular old folks or not. Um, docs are among the hardest group of people I know to manage, partly because practices are so poorly organized. Um, some docs wouldn't deign to update their work. It's silly, but the fact is it's true. Um, and that's a function of their role power coming from their role as a physician. Um, even if there is some vertical structure in the practice, uh, usually those structures don't include a lot of teeth. We like Basecamp, although some things we don't like. It doesn't, doesn't work real well with OmniFocus or, or email. Um, but, but the problem with not having some sort of updating uh, uh, software is that other people can't know, and most people don't realize, can't know when something is done or not done, and most people don't realize that the organization has a vested interest not just in having something done, but in having the rest of the organization know that something is done. Reporting on something is as, not as, but is almost as important as getting the thing done. And so if I'm waiting to hear from you every week at the, in, our, in our staff meeting or our project meeting about whether or not something's done, when in fact it was done three days ago, and I'm waiting to do what I need to do until you're done, you've wasted three days. And that costs time and money. So, yeah, I think Basecamp could work. Uh, it would depend on what kind of docs you've got. Some are, some are technophobes, some are technophiles. Some resist all efforts to see further into their, their own time management. Okay. Okay. Next question from Scott. I'd like to hear suggestions for how to reduce the time I spend aiming. Scott, I appreciate your candor. I'm sure it was hard for a high S, high C. Uh, in my notes, I wrote the first words I wrote down, Scott, were aye, aye, aye. Look, first of all, folks, I've always had an underpinning of my thinking that every individual, professionally speaking, has two managers at work. Their titular boss, the person whom you call boss, and yourself. So the question to you might be, what would you do if you were your boss? And if you have a boss you really trust, I don't know who you are or who your boss is, suggest some of the things I'm allowed to suggest and work with him or her to craft some incentives or just disincentives if you're willing, if you believe your excuse behavior is such that you can't get past it. I will tell you, if someone told me what you told me, I would question the professional maturity of this person. And I would say, wow, if you can tell yourself excuses and you always get off and you always let yourself off the hook, I wouldn't want to be giving you more responsibilities. I'd afraid you'd put all those on the hook and then let yourself off of it. Now, what would I do if I were your manager? And, and remember what I just said about you have two managers so you can do this yourself. I'd give you a shorter um, uh, deadline to work with, a, re a, a, a really short deadline, and I'd reduce the amount um, of negative feedback I gave you for poor quality when you met deadlines. A lot of managers give shorter deadlines, and then beat people up who are struggling to get to come faster because the work suffers in quality. There's going to be an inevitable dip in quality. You're going to think it's a huge dip. Your boss probably won't. Okay? So shorter deadlines, really short deadlines, and I, if it were me, I would lose the amount of negative feedback I gave you for poor quality. The moment you missed the deadline, I'd be giving you negative feedback. 
uh, you know, it just occurs to me one thing you could do is publish your, your deadlines somewhere that other people can see them, including your boss, um, and they'd be able to keep track of it. Um, and, and and so if you miss a deadline, I wouldn't. I don't care how good you are. If you want me to help you, and I'm your manager, you're gonna get negative feedback the moment you miss a deadline. I'm not gonna worry about quality as much. And and if you did it often enough, you get systemic feedback from me. But another thing you can do, I think a lot of people try for a day or two and then discover it's hard and quit. Um, but let's think about measuring your performance longer term. I know a lot of people who, before making the excuse, beat themselves up about their failures, but then they make the excuse that goes away, and there's no systemic effort to change. Try systematizing your failures by keeping track every week. You don't have to go from slow person to quit draw overnight. If you fail to meet deadlines 80% of the time today, shoot for getting to 70% in a month. And that way, any single missed deadline or, or spin, speeding up, any single delay is not a killer, right? And you say, okay, I'll chalk that one up to the 30%, right? Um, you know, it's going to take a while for you to change, but at least you recognize there's a systemic issue. Um, and, and if you improve from 80 to 70 in a month, in a year, you'd be in great shape. So don't beat yourself up about it. You are where you are. They're keeping you around. So try to improve by 10% a month. Or if you can't do that, 10% every other month. In, in six months, you'll be 30% better, and you'll be to the point where you can start feeling like it's not a significant negative. Okay? Next question. Jackie, an old friend joined my team last year and says things to me in staff meetings that others see as disrespectful. Huh. Well, I guess my question is, are the comments disrespectful? If they are, give her feedback. It's simple. Hey, when you say X, it's harmful to the work I'm doing with other people on the team. Um, it sounds to me, reading through the lines, that you agree with your team that there are some things that are disrespectful. Look, if she's a friend, and now she's your direct, so therefore she's not your friend, um, but you can be friendly with her, give her some feedback. It's not helping. It's not helping team morale. Manager Tool says, as said from the beginning, two reasons to get rid of somebody. I'm not suggesting this is the case here, but two reasons, fundamentally, to have a problem with somebody on your team, and that's somebody who doesn't achieve results and somebody who tears down the team. Okay? Um, now, it's possible your team are a bunch of milk toasts, and any single thing really bothers them. You know, I was in the Army, Mike was in the Army for a while, and so we, you know, you could, you could pretty much punch us in the nose and we'd be okay with that. Um, as, as Mike and I have told the story before, um, our colonel once put a cigar out, a lighted cigar out on the, the, the closed chest of a lieutenant co-worker of ours. Um, so, you know, he believed in significant emotional events. Your team may not be able to handle that. That said, I still would say, if you think there's a doubt, just say, hey, you don't need to say those things. We're friends and don't do that anymore. Okay? And if you're uncomfortable telling that to your friend, you've got a different problem. All right. Next, from Mike, we're on 15. I think we're okay on time. Do you have any advice on things that I can help with uh, establish and normalize a new language team, with focus the team after layoffs, with focus my perspective, advise on any pitfalls? Wow, a lot of there, a lot there. Um, uh, you're, you're, first of all, kudos to you, Mike. You said you're going to work on the Trinity. You plan to roll out the Trinity. And we like that. <laughs> we recommend it. We don't like it because it's ours. We like it because we know it works. We have data. You totally need staff meetings, okay? Use the meeting introduction manager tool that I, I think I've said before. It's my favorite manager tool. 
meeting introduction. Have everybody introduce themselves. Make sure your staff meetings are joint. Don't run them in two different locations. Okay, if somebody has to dial in, have them dial in. Um, uh, bring your people together. We, we talked about managing distant uh, directs. We, we said, you know, spend budget on getting together. Now may not be the right time, but if you have budget, if there's a way to get budget, work hard to get it and bring your team together um, so that they can all meet face-to-face. -face. That personal face-to-face -face meeting makes an enormous difference. And for those of you who haven't heard us say it recently, um, distance is much shorter or is, is much more of an issue than you think. Uh, there's data to show in a recent study that if you are on a different floor from your manager, your score of your relationship with your manager and manager score of his or her relationship with you is the same as if you were in another state. That's how much distance matters. So having two different groups, particularly if they do two different things, Mike, you need to work hard on having staff meetings and having everybody there. And I would be more than most people, uh, more than most managers, I would be willing to give negative feedback about people who relate to staff meetings and people who missed staff meetings unless they had a damn good reason. Um, and look, it, for, for, because you've got managers reporting to you, roll the trinity down to them over time after they learn it from you. And then measure their behavior, the percentage of one-on-ones they conduct, follow up with skip-level meetings. Uh, skip-level meetings will take a while to happen, but you can, you can start them pretty quickly, and then you, know, you can do them once a quarter. And then at some point, once you're one, your directs start doing one-on-ones, you can start asking the skip-levels, raise your hand if you had a one-on-one -on -one last week. And if you don't want to get 25% of the hands held up, but your directs are telling you that you're doing 80% of their one-on-one, you get a problem. And you find, and then it's time to find out what, what's actually true. And ask to see their one-on-one -on -one paperwork. What, where are their notes? And if somebody tells you, I'm not taking notes today, change that. Thanks. Um, but look, the way to refocus people in terms of work is to rededicate yourself and everybody else to achieving results. Okay? Think about how you're tracking, how you're assessing, how the team is reporting on the work. Give more feedback. Matter, matter of fact, simple, direct, polite feedback. That's the solution. Give them something to worry about other than the layoff and what might happen. Give them productive work to do. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on managing remotely. It's harder. It definitely is harder. People expect to see other people's faces when they have power. But it's not that much different. We have tasks on that. If you have more questions, feel free to ask um, by email. I don't know what you mean by leveling up. Uh, so, Mike, you're going to have to send me an email and tell me more about what you mean by leveling up. All right, next question from Miranda. We're on 16, we have to get to 21. How do you handle a direct that interrupts your feedback by switching topics from the middle of a step three describe impact? I, I love questions like this, because literally I cannot imagine a directive mind when we can chime in separately with something, changing the subject of a conversation I'm having with them. And I'm not an impolite person, folks. The persona you hear from me on, on the air is not my managerial persona. Um, Look, if somebody interrupts and tries to change the subject, you're the boss, politely restart the feedback. If they take the, if they take the different act, say, well, okay, thank you, and let me go back. When you do X, here's what happens. What are you going to do differently? And look, give them feedback and interrupting. I wouldn't tolerate it. And holy crap, what are they switching to? I mean, how, how much different is it? I, I mean, look, it's very possible that, like a good friend of ours who had a direct to he said, well, one of my bosses has ever done this to me, so I don't like this. And when he said, what do you think about this guy? And I said, well, I think he's a weasel. 
Um, and you know, I, I, and here's the behavior. Regardless of what I think, here's the behavior you should engage in. Uh, he said, "Yep, it was amazing." I started giving him feedback and hold him accountable, and things changed. Now, for some people, they've had soft bosses or weak bosses or bad bosses, and they're going to have to learn it from you. Right? All right. And I don't mean to speak lightly about that, but I just um, I, I'm struggling to imagine that happening. Okay, from Pierre Eves, uh, how do you determine the next topics you'll cover in class? <laughs> wow. Oh, just whatever I happen to find on my desk. Uh, there are a bunch of factors. We do have a list of, I have a list of thousands of tasks. I did lose 50 of them recently when I left one of my notebooks on a plane. Uh, very frustrating. Uh, that's okay, they'll come back to me. We, we can't talk about some things that we're working on with a client at that time because the client thinks we're leveraging our work with them and we don't want to do that and they think we're being too candid about our work. We are generally inclined to keep our task lists random because, it, look, we, get, we almost always get negative feedback when we have multiple, multiple part tasks. And, you know, I've had people, I'm sure you guys know that we got one email from a guy who said, I'd like your task to be 22 minutes long because that's the length of my, my commute. My wife doesn't like it when I get home and I'm still listening to your task. I said, well, one thing we can do is we can make them longer and worse and you'll get out of the car at 22 minutes and your wife will and then your wife will be upset we're good and you want to listen. Um, you know, I can't, yeah, people want them to be five minutes long. Sure, you know. If I'm the universe, be specific, give two examples. Um, so, so we make them random because we don't want one topic to dominate for a while. We don't have any plans to ever allow anyone to vote. Sorry, I've got too much to cover. Uh, I'm not going to say, okay, go ahead and vote, and then have the voting gamed or have it weighted heavily and then have to do a cast that I don't feel is valuable as some of the other stuff we're going to do. Uh, please feel free to send requests. Every single request I've gotten is in the list, and we're gonna, we've added them all to the list. We'll add your request to the list. Okay? Um, what can a manager do about complacency in their staff? Good people working hard but maybe coasting. And there's an example about, about messy roommates. Look, complacent directs are not roommates. You don't coach people on their urgency and their drive. You assign them work. You praise them. You give them positive feedback for work that's done well. You differentially reward people who do more good work, um, and you praise and reward and give feedback for accomplishment. And you give negative feedback when, people, when folks don't do what they're supposed to do. Um, another thing we haven't talked about a lot, but hopefully some of you have sussed it out from the hints we've given, you, you also assign work differentially based on ability. And when someone achieves Systemically, the, the level that you want them to be at, you assign them more work or harder work or faster work, and you try to get more out of each individual people. It is not fair to assign everybody in the team the same amount of work. You're robbing the top people of a higher level goal, okay? And it's not, and it's not unfair to hold a top person to a higher number and then don't give them a reward when, in fact, a lower person achieves the same amount, but because they achieved their goal, you're going to reward them, okay? And keep in mind, there's going to be some coasting in every organization. It's not the end of the world when my unit won the most efficient unit in the Army, totally by luck. I think we were evaluated 63% efficiency, and that's pretty good. Okay? I do respect, though, that when you say complacency and coasting, I understand that you think it's happening. Um, it may be that there's a time for a little bit of coasting. I would think now is not the time. 
I do think some IT organizations in the last few years have earned a little bit of coaching, even though it doesn't appear to be possible, just because the pace of change has been so hard in IT and the budgets get cut so quickly that senior IT people aren't good at getting budgets. Um, but that's the best I can do. Okay. We've got five minutes left. We've got three more here. Would I ever reject a candidate straight up because they had a resume that stinks? You bet your butt I would. I would reject a candidate for the way he smiled at me. I would reject somebody just because I didn't feel right about them, and I have no words for it. Um, okay, now, that said, look, I see terrible resumes all the time that don't meet any reasonable standard of mine. Um, you don't have to do it that way, guys. You don't, but we recommend it, and that's what we do. We eat our own dog food here. Uh, I can't know what kind of folks are in the room, but folks, I'm 50 years old, and I have a one-page resume. Okay? Yeah, for executive roles, we recommend longer, sometimes two pages. Usually, though, the four- and five-page resumes I see are just formatting in white space that makes it go long. And formatting in white space is completely lost on anybody who has any power to hire any significant level executive. Look, I'm, look and I want to go into this a little bit more detail because I think people say, think that I'm really far out there when, in fact, I'm only far out there compared to the average manager. I'm absolutely okay using one's knowledge, in other words, a candidate's knowledge of the process of getting hired as a discriminator in hiring them. But that's not because alone I think the process itself is sacrosanct at all. It's because, A, I use every discriminator at my disposal, and if all other things being equal, one guy nailed every single detailed step of the process, I want to hire him rather than the guy who kind of mailed it in along the way. Okay? And, and B, there's ample guidance out there about resumes, and the majority of multiple praise resumes that I see and Wendy sees and Mike sees and Maggie sees are not just indicative of lack of proper formatting, but rather, in my experience, it's a sign this person hasn't implied themselves fully, and I don't want someone applying before they even get hired when, when they know everything's being scrutinized um, and then not applying themselves fully. I see that as an especially dangerous indicator. And I'm looking for indicators. I'm looking for reasons to say no. Um, look, regarding using all discriminators, we believe in setting the bar very high. We think most managers far undervalue both the potential of the positions they're recruiting for and the standards necessary to achieve it. Okay? Um, you know, you, you, you'll, you'll get better hires if you say no more often. You'll get less hires, but you'll get better ones. The best person you've ever had on your team can be the standard for all future hires if you want them to be. Most managers think exceptional performance is the exception. Great managers think exceptional performance can be the norm. Now, let me flip the question over and really probably upset some people. Is it possible I were to hire somebody with a bad resume? Sure it is, right? They can overcome it. I think it's unlikely because I'm looking for all kinds of discriminators. But, but yeah, I can think of some people that have had less than great resumes that I've hired. Um, we're looking at somebody now. We, we thought about hiring somebody recently who said, yeah, I definitely used Wendy's guidance and sent a four-page resume to it. This person was 40 years old. I'm sorry. To us? Really? <laughs> so hope, hopefully that helps. If you need a more nuanced answer, Brian or whomever you are, I'd be happy to do it. Okay. How should I handle people? Next question. How should I handle people with whom I'm trying to maintain contact for my network but who never return my phone calls or emails? Brian, if that's me, I apologize. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, the answer is stay, try to stay in touch 15 times. 
That's how often to reach out before no response from somebody means they're not interested and you can say, okay, I'll find somebody else. You ask, you call a few, a few times in a week and then leave it alone. Oh, my God, no. I would not call a few times in a given week. What you do is you reach out, okay? Your contact efforts ought not to imply that a return call appears to be an obligation. Keeping in touch isn't, by definition, a reciprocal effort, guys. It's individual in the same way that some people tend to stay in touch with you and some don't. If Bob calls you once a quarter, you think of yourself, you think of Bob as somebody who stays in touch. Whether you return Bob's call one time, zero times, or four times, Bob is still somebody who stays in touch. Bob is working on keeping the relationship warm or semi-warm or not ice cold. So I would stay in touch 15 times. I would work at it for 15 times in a row, and if I got no responses after 15 times in a quarter, you know, four times a year, so we're taking three years, and it only takes a minute to leave a voicemail, uh, then I would say, okay, this person, and probably by then you've lost contact with them, their voicemail or email has changed. And, and at that point I would say, okay, they're not going to respond. All right, we got one minute. Can you elaborate why Marcus hammered on the wood should as not being appropriate for managers or in a business context? Well, now I'm hammering things. Look, folks, this is great. Should implies a moral, uh, an obligation or a duty. Um, the definition of Merriam-Webster says, used to indicate obligation, duty, or correctness, typically when criticizing someone's action. Okay? It, it, it often is, suggests a, a negative judgment of others' failures to keep their obligations or their duty. And, and in some cases, you get the sense there's a tone of moral judgment. I actually got this question in the Marcus Talking Crazy ask I put out recently, and I just haven't gotten around to answering all of them. I got about 10, by the way, and some of them I wasn't very crazy. I'd um, be happy to defend myself. Um, but, but look, we want to avoid things that imply that, that, there's, that, that it's an obligation. Now, look, I have a duty to do something in my job, but that doesn't mean every possible way of doing it is, by definition, an obligation or a duty. The choice we make about how we do things is not an obligation unless it's mandated by law. Okay? If, a man, if, as a manager, I say, you should do X and Y, that's different than saying you have an obligation to do your job. Should, you should do X and Y says you're obligated to do these specific things. It's less effective, it's worse, it's less effective to say you should do X and Y than it is to say I recommend you do X and Y, okay? Or if you intend to suggest that the two things are in fact an obligation, that you, the manager, are communicating with the full power of your role power, it's clearer then to say you not you should do X and Y, but do X and do Y, Okay? Also, think about, okay, too many of us use should when talking about other people or in the third person. Someone should do this. I hear this all the time. Well, I think you should do X or you should do Y. It's the whole third person thing. Someone should do this or someone should do that. It's funny how people rarely say, I should do this. When they do, though, you'll notice it's a statement that is not a recommended course of action, but rather what they deem is the right thing to do. And implying a rightness is usually problematic when suggesting a course of action, a course of activity for direct. Uh, should, and you may argue with me that, well, should doesn't have that moral connotation to me. That's fine, but obligation and duty and judgment are all words that are pretty strong, and I think as, as lame as we all are in communicating, particularly when 
it doesn't matter whether you think the word means what it, what you say or not. It matters what the person who's hearing you uh, thinks it means. And a direct being told by a manager, you should do this or you should do that, that's almost a direct verbal order. And we should save those times for when it's absolutely necessary they do it exactly your way. Heaven forbid people think you're a micromanager because you say you should do it this way or that. You now, look, you've heard me slip on the cast, so sometimes I slip, and uh, you will too, and that's okay. But it's one of those grammatical things that I'm probably overly sensitive to. And that's all our questions, and it's 8.02. Mike, how'd I do? Pretty good. Not bad. Two minutes after I took up so much time. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. Are we done? Well, are we done? I think, I think we are, we're done. Right? We are. Oh, well, I, before, let me say one more thing. Folks, we really appreciate you. Um, you mean a lot to us. Um, we're doing this for you and other people like you. Um, it means a lot that you take time to listen, whether you're mowing the yard or doing laundry or in the car. Um, we try very hard every week to deliver value and, of course, deliver other value in other ways. Um, if you need our help, send us an email. Let us know what you thought of the call. Let us know how I can do better. Uh, I'm I'm open to that. Don't say should, though. Um, <laughs> and Mike and I, and Maggie and Wendy, mean it from the bottom of our hearts. It is a privilege to do this for you. Uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. So long.